Hello, everyone. Good evening. Good morning, depending on where you are in the world. We're so thrilled that we have fans from Australia, Great Britain, Ireland, New Zealand, I mean, all over the world. So I can't tell what time it is. You'd have to have the clock for every location. I'm Bill Cannon from Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. And with me tonight, uh, you notice his new haircut straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? Pretty good, Bill. And I'm going to explain this haircut in a second. Well, that's uh, you're, you're looking good anyway, folks. You know, uh, with a lot of we're doing a lot of different things on Police Off the Cuff and Real Crime Stories. Um, and one of the things we started to do is um, we've been getting like some people reaching out to us and ask us if um, they they could come on our show. And we actually have a commitment from Sammy the Bull Gravano who has his own podcast called Our Thing. It's a very um, successful podcast. And, of course, we said, Sammy, of course we would love for you to come on our podcast. So on September 15th um, at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have Sammy the Bull Gravano come on our show. And the funny thing is, is that Phil and uh, Tommy Dates, who's been on our show quite a few times, knew Sammy the Bull from growing up in Brooklyn. So they had run into him back in the day. And uh, in fact, Tommy Dades uh, considers Sammy, Bull, Sammy the Bull a friend. But we're going to cover this again in a police way. We're not going to uh, glorify a, a mobster's life. But he has a great story to tell. And uh, we're going to tell the story. And we also have um, another uh, guy from the Bath Avenue um, boys, uh Jimmy Calandra, another made guy who's got an amazing story to tell. So, no, we're not becoming the wise guy and the mob uh, podcast, but we like to have an eclectic uh, group of audience members, and I think it will be uh, pretty exciting. And, um, and in turn, I'm sure it'll lead to other great guests coming on the show. I've reached out to a number of different actors that play mob parts, and uh, we're looking to get them on the show, too. Uh, Phil, you got anything to add to that? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, real quick, Jimmy Calandria was actually never made. He probably would have gotten there, but um, they killed his uh, best friend, Paulie Galino, and I'm sure he'll talk about that. This is uh, something to do with uh, his story, Mob Over Miami. Uh, Tommy Dades was involved in that book, and um, – it really is uh, a quite riveting story uh, about Jimmy Calandria. And obviously, Sammy the Bull, everybody knows who he is. I think he's internationally known. Um, he was uh, underboss in the uh, Gambino crime family and, uh, you know, under John Gotti. And he wound up becoming, um, you know, he testified in court, put a lot of guys away, and he was given a deal. He eventually uh, came out of jail, and he started his own podcast. And he's doing very successful uh numbers with it. You know, he's got a lot of uh, followers and viewers. And if you look at, I, I think we mentioned this before, you look at all the great mob movies, The Godfather 1, 2, and 3, Goodfellas. These are classic movies. Uh, uh, the, the Untouchables, uh, uh, you know, um, the other one there, a Casino. And uh, listen, I could go on and on. The, the, the point is, there's a tremendous interest in it. We're going to continue to do our, uh, obviously, our professional opinions on different matters and stuff and cases. But I think that there's definitely a, a spot for, uh, you know, hearing from the other side, so to speak. And you're going to get the perspective from us. You're going to get the 
the perspective from the guys who once were in the life, as they say, the life. And, uh, you know, uh, Tommy Dades, who's been on, will probably be on with us with uh, Sammy. And he's like the encyclopedia of uh, organized crime in, uh, I guess you could say the New York area, but generally Brooklyn. He, he knew guys. And, and the other night when he was on Jimmy Calandria's show, he was spitting out things about, you know, uh, stuff from before we were even born re related to organized crime. So he's a wealth of information in that, uh, in that respect. You know, I think everyone loves organized crime stories. They love mafia stories. And I think most people know the story of Sammy Bull, uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano. He'd uh, done, uh, gone on 19 hits in his mafia career. And he basically um, took a deal from the government to testify against John Gotti and uh, he's free. He's free now, living in Arizona, and he has his own podcast. Some folks may think that's that's outrageous, but you know something? We don't make the rules. The federal government cut that deal with him, and he's a free man to this day. Hello from uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Choose life. You know, folks, one of the things we uh, we wanted to talk about tonight, of course, Summer Wells, and that's uh, why we're here tonight. And I'm not going to come out of the box and say, oh, we got a smoking gun and there's this new information and that information. Well, we're hearing a lot from people on on YouTube about, uh, is this a cold case? And we want to answer some of those questions and then maybe even restate some of the things that we've already been over. And there's some, there's some a there was a guy named uh, Kenneth Maines on about a week ago who uh, does a lot of work in cold cases. And I thought... Rosemary Hill, thank you so much. A new member to the uh, Police Off the Cuff family. Uh, and he gave a really um, heartfelt sort of very straight-laced and very um, educated analysis of this case. And I thought, I, I almost thought we, I was listening to him say the exact same things we've said over time. But one of the things that everyone wants to know is this case now a cold case. And Philly, I'm going to put that, that question to you. Is this a cold case? Well, before I answer, I just want to explain my new haircut. Um, I have uh, several close friends and I have a couple of relatives and my good friend, Joe, a uh, couple of uh, the guys that we were tight with decided to shave our heads in uh, solidarity with him. I mean, I'm not down to the skin. I'm pretty close to it. And this is a big step for me. Tommy shaved his head, another good friend of ours, Louie. And I just got to mention my cousin, Peter, who's battling cancer, uh, his son-in-law guy, my other cousin, Jamie out in Long Island. And then I have two good friends that are waiters at a restaurant in Brooklyn, Spumoni Gardens. Their dads are both battling cancer. Lots of prayers to everybody. Just a little solidarity with the haircuts. But getting back to Summer Welds, cold case. I would say 100% absolutely not a cold case. And I'll give you the reasons why. There was over a 1,000 tips that were uh, coming in. We're up to day 70. Uh, that 1,000 was probably about two weeks ago. There could be 1,200 at this point. I don't know how many there is. Again, we don't have access to the case folder. I am sure that a lot of investigative work is going into this case. And there's different ways of gauging what a cold case is. Now, in my opinion, in this case, it's far from cold. It's only 70 days. I know it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. It, it, poor well, Summer is missing all those days. We don't know where she is. And it's definitely a lot. And I can't even think of 70 minutes being out, uh, 70 seconds, not knowing where my daughter is or any of my children. And, uh, so 
the point is this, a cold case in my view is, and, and every case is different. This case might be cold a long time from now. Other cases, uh, murder cases or, or missing cases can go cold very quickly. But in my opinion, this case is not cold. And the reasons that I think that is all of the uh, stuff that I mentioned with all the leads that are probably still going on, all the technical work, the uh, cell phone records, computers, uh, video cameras, there's going to be a lot of follow-up done on those things. So I doubt very highly this would be considered cold. A cold case, in my opinion, is this. When all investigative leads have been exhausted, meaning you checked it out and there was nothing there to, to go further on that specific lead. When all leads are exhausted and there's nothing else coming in, no new information coming in, and then you just start to go over the stuff you already did or you look into, you know, you shake the tree a little with different things. That's what I might consider a cold case. And I think in this specific case, it's far from cold. I mean, we haven't even gone through one season yet. When you go through in, a, in an area where it gets cold and warm with spring, summer, winter, and fall, and, and a person is missing, that might turn up, you know, evidence or may turn up remains because of the different seasons. You know, things die, the weeds uh, drop down. So, uh, you know, th there's a lot of things to take into consideration. To put it in a nutshell, no, absolutely not. This is not a cold case, Bill. What do you think, in your opinion? You're a sergeant in a homicide squad for a long time. In your opinion, do you agree? Well, you know something? I 100% agree with you. Danielle Flood, thank you so much for the $15 super chat. Glad to see you guys keep up the amazing work for Summer Moon, Utah Wells. She deserves justice, no doubt. You know, one of the things is that, I, I, and I've, I've said this before, investigation is an art and a science, Right. And we're hoping that the science meets the art of investigation and the police, um, the TBI, the FBI have some stuff up their sleeves that we don't know. There's so much being said over the internet, but guess, guess what? No one on the internet, none of us YouTube content creators are going to solve this case. This case is going to be solved by the police, by the TBI, by the FBI. And when they're ready to move forward with their evidence, they're going to move forward. And I know everyone, of course, is frustrated. And I don't blame them. I'm frustrated too. And one of the reasons I'm frustrated is because I'm used to knowing the inside information. And I don't know the inside. I'm, I'm not privy to the inside information. And what compounds this is that, you know, Don Wells is on, seems like he's on YouTube every other night speaking to someone else. And just letting, uh, just putting forth information, whether it's true or false. Someone in the chat asked, "Would the um, would the police or the FBI, or the TBI, use that information? They could use that information, but if they use the information, if information is collected, say, by a content creator, that becomes what we know in the legal uh, specter as discovery. Discovery is is." Evidence and other information, written information, uh, all kinds of evidence that the prosecution has. And by law, they must turn it over to the defense. So if the prosecution accepted some of this information from, say, content creators, it would, would become subject to discovery. And who that would be helping would be the defense, because the prosecution had nothing to do with collecting this information. So they cannot verify its veracity. So therefore, I don't think any content creator is giving over 
information to the TBI, FBI, or the, or the local police because it puts them in a position where that information is 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 discovery. And I know we have Joe Murray in the chat, and he's listening. And I'm sure that uh, if if he can comment on this in the chat, I would love to uh, see what he's saying. He may have he may have fallen asleep by now. I don't know, but. Um, that's why I don't think that they would use any of the information other than if it's like smoking gun information. Otherwise, this stuff becomes what's known as discovery. Yeah. If someone was to make a, uh, a spontaneous utterance, which is a legal term, during one of these uh, YouTube uh, uh, podcasts or true content creators or, you know, if they say something or if it's a direct message to them, even not on camera, and now this person is coming forward with uh, with that information, that would be obviously helpful. And uh, but but some of the stuff is uh, like you said, it, it would be discovery material. And, you know, we, we sure wish we had we miss Joe Murray tonight. He's uh, under the weather, which we wish him well. We're hoping he's going to be feeling better real soon and have him back on with us. But but uh, this is where he would come in uh, handy. Well, um, Joe, Joe, Joe Murray just was in the chat, and Joe, uh, he said the prosecutor must turn over evidence or material within their control. But, Joe, my question to you is, if they accepted some of the information that's being reported from civilians, wouldn't they, if they collected this, wouldn't they be responsible to turn that over to the defense? Yeah, I guess we got to wait for Joe to respond to that. I yeah. any, any anything anything in a homicide investigation or any investigation when you go to trial, whatever you have at some point. I mean, the, the district attorney's office a lot of times they like to hold it back till the last minute, but they turn it over to uh, the defense so they can mount their defense and maybe figure out how they're going to cross-examine witnesses, challenge evidence, etc. So it, it all gets turned over, and the thing is, if uh, if stuff isn't turned over, uh, but the defense attorney can now go onto YouTube and look at all of these different things and maybe create doubt if someone is charged. I mean, I'm not talking about this case or any case. It could be, you know, just any case. But if if a case is talked about, now a defense attorney can go through a lot of these uh, contents on on YouTube and say, well, did this person say this at this time? Did they say that and challenge it? And then and then I believe. They would have to let the, the the prosecution or the defense would have to let the prosecution know we intend to call this witness that's a YouTube creator because this this and this was said on the uh, you know you know, you know when we you know Phil when I asked Joe that last question you know he gave me a one word answer he said yes I guess he's not making six fifty an hour he's not going to give a long you know, <laughs> you could tell he's one in order if that's what he did that's you right he just he just gave me a one word answer yes you know. Yeah. So, yeah, folks, yeah, anyone boy. that's on YouTube has a right to do all of this. I'm not going to say course, anyone doesn't have a right to it. But, look, one of the things that we do when we do work a homicide, we sit around together and we discuss, I used to call it hypothesizing and theorizing. And we discuss the case and we discuss what ifs. And what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? Establishing a direction to this case. And I think early on in this case, um, I had said, and I still feel this way, that the answer to this case is in the world of Don and Candace. I think somewhere in their circle is the answer to this case, and I still believe that to this day. And I haven't seen anything that has made me change my mind. I mean, there's many – look, there's, I, could I be wrong? 
100% I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. And I freely admit that because, as I said, investigation is an art and a science. And there's no, you can't think in absolutes. You have to have an open mind. And if you're going in the wrong direction, you have to be ready to change direction. And according to what the evidence is telling you. And you can't be rigid in this business. You can't say, oh, no, it's this way, because that's, you know, you're not going to solve a lot of cases if you're that way. You have to be willing to roll with the punches. You made a good point, Bill. It just sparked something in my memory. Um, hypothesizing and theorizing. I love the way you said it. We used to call it chewing the fat, but whatever it was, I could remember on any high profile case or a homicide investigation, uh, you know, the case is going, maybe it's a couple of days old and we would get uh, some material witness to the case into the interview room. We would uh, start talking to them and then we would get information. It would usually be me and my partner or me and the guy from the homicide squad come out of the room and everybody'd be waiting. It'd be seven, eight, 10 detectives, the bosses. And they'd say, all right, you know, what'd they say? So we would, you know, we would gather around and we would say, all right, they told us this, this, and that. And then exactly what you just described, the hypothesizing and the theorizing, we would put our heads together and say, all right, he said that. So that would mean this. Why don't we go do that? I mean, I'm using this and that as examples because I'm not being specific. You know, I'm just using a general case. But uh, that's a lot of times how direction would either change, like you just said, or we would continue further on down the road of the direction we were in. All right, now we got a little bit more based on what this person told us. Uh, we're going to go recheck uh, an area to look for evidence, or we're going to go talk to another person that they just gave us. And then the pieces start to eventually all come together. And that's how uh, homicide investigation goes. And it's not always successful. Sometimes there are cases that go for many years unsolved and stuff, stuff like that. But generally speaking, um, you know, we would all put our heads together and listen, sometime there would be a detective or a boss that would dissent and say, no, I don't think it. And I could remember specifically uh, a homicide investigation it was a high profile case. And we had a guy identified in photos, uh, four witnesses to a homicide. Three of them said in the photo array, it was definitely him. The fourth said, I think it's him and pointed to the same guy. When we got the guy in the, in the interview, uh, in the lineup, we've conducted a lineup, four witnesses. One said, I think it's this guy. The other three couldn't pick him out. And there was just something strange about it. And I'll never forget my partner's words. He goes, I don't know. There's just something. And we thought the guy did it. We we thought we had the right guy. We were real, real sure that this was the guy. And then my partner goes, nah, he, he's just not. There's something missing with this case. The guy's not acting right. Sure enough, 24 hours later, we got a phone call from another agency. They had arrested two guys in another state and the gun that was used matched. And we went and we uh, interviewed those two guys and they wound up confessing to the murder. But we were this close to possibly arresting the wrong person. So glad it didn't happen, but on occasion it does happen. But I will never forget my partner who had more time on the job than me. I think I was a rookie detective then saying, something just don't feel right about it. And I really thought we had the right guy. So putting your heads together, hypothesizing and theorizing, it, it yeah. really is part of the investigation. Yeah, uh, Freethinker Deb S., thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. You wrote to us, thank you very much for your amazing dedication for seeking justice. Appreciate you for keeping precious summer relevant and not giving up on her. You know, one of the things that I always like to, to talk about, there's something in, in homicide investigation um, called mind mapping or data mining. I think data mining is the more 
um, up-to-date term. And there's also a term we've used, and you hear other homicide investigators use it. It's called victimology. And what that simply is is the study of the background of the victim. In this incident, the, the, the victim is a five-year-old little girl. So the, her victimology, of course, is going to study her background. And right away, what's going to be included in her background, of course, is the two most important people in her life, her parents. And this, this instance, it's Don and Candace. Now go a step far, further with that. We would completely look into the backgrounds of Don and Candace. Let's go with Don first. We would look into his work history, vehicles that he owns, his criminal history, his marriage history, licenses that he owns. Does he have gun permits? Does he have any other kind of licenses? Um, his friends. When he did get arrested, who were his cellmates? What was he arrested for? Um, he lived in other states, right? Uh, I believe they lived in Wisconsin. Uh, let's look. We have to look into that. His teachers at school. Oh, I mean, it encompasses such a great deal of information that in the old days, when they used to put it on a blackboard, it might be on about, you know, five or six boards to gather all of that information. Now it's gathered by a computer. We have a database called Faces of the Nation or AutoTrack that if you even saw anyone who's even not involved in crime, if you ran your name, it would come up with information you'd be shocked at. Your first grade teacher, you know, uh, where addresses that you lived, cars that you owned, you know, all kinds of things that you would have forgotten. But this information could become critical in a homicide investigation, you know. And one of the things that I always like to do in a homicide investigation, we love in New York City, we love to use that term, shake the tree. And part of shaking the tree is enforcement at locations. And I'm sure there's places in Tennessee that the criminal element hangs out in. Drug, drug dealers, uh, people that commit crimes, stealing cars, forgery, all of that stuff. We need to debrief those people after they're arrested. Because of that old expression, birds of a feather flock together. And lots of times the criminal element knows information about crimes that no one else knows about. And that's how in my homicide experience, and not just in homicide, I was in the detective bureau for 16 years, robberies, grand larcenies, GLAs, burglaries. We would get information from the criminal element that might help us in solving a case because if you can give someone court consideration or give them a get-out-of-jail-free card, you'd be surprised at the information they may come up with to help your case. You know, Bill, uh, you brought up the uh, the different databases that are queried for information on victimology or, or perpetrators or uh, family members. Uh, when I was in the intelligence division, we had access to HIDA. You know what HIDA is, Bill? Hyder was yes, the high, high, high intensity drug trafficking area. agency. Yeah. Agency. Yeah, that's, area. Yeah. And it was it was a culmination of several different agencies, DEA, FBI, all, all different law enforcement agencies. So we had uh, access to that. So uh, when we were doing counterterrorism stuff after 9-11, we would throw names to them and they would give us back. I mean, the average person was 100 pages of information. It would give – there was a thing called LexisNexis. I'm sure you're familiar with that too, yes, Bill. Yes, uh-huh. And it would give us, obviously, all the things Bill said, current name, address, 
date of birth, social security number. Then it gives previous addresses, vehicles owned, previous vehicles owned, uh, relatives, possible relatives, neighbors, possible neighbors, gave a ton of information, fishing licenses, gun permits, boating licenses, all different things. So now you say to yourself, why would you need all that information? But that gives you a tremendous background on the person that you're looking at. And you don't know if maybe, you know, someone disposed of a body on a boat and they have a fishing license and they have a boat registered in the name. So you would go in that direction. So a lot of times, some of that 100, 150 pages they hand to you, a lot of it might not have been relevant. But in a specific case, a specific person, a specific investigation, it might it might might have the key to the whole case might be right in that uh, report that you uh, that you get from them. So, uh, yeah, that that type of stuff, I'm sure, is being done victimology. And, you know, when we started to to look at uh, this case from the beginning, I mean, our uh, opinions, we kind of went into high gear. The guy you were talking about, Maines earlier, Bill, Detective Maines, I think it was. He uh, basically, Kenny, yeah, Kenny Maines. Kenny, Kenny Maines, Maines is his name. He basically yeah. said, now he looked at it and he talked very slowly and he was methodical about everything that he said. But he basically, in a nutshell, said everything that we said, which was our first instinct on this case, was that we thought that, you know, based on what we saw, that we thought that Candace and Don had a lot of answering to do. So now I know, I know, Bill, you said you were going to play a little bit of the uh, of the interview. And uh, I guess maybe we could do that and then, uh, you know, yeah. talk a little further about it. Because I want to kind of justify I, I want to explain, not justify, I want to explain why I, and, and your opinion was the same opinion, why I felt uh, that I thought that they needed to be uh, looked at a little further. I think there was, you know, a good cause and good reason. And and I think there's a vindication at the end of it. I'll explain that too. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I'm, I got the, uh, the, the video queued up and I'm going to put it on the screen. I wish you would because I want to make a comment about okay. it. Okay. By her swing. I feel in my heart that somebody has came up here and took her and has lured her away from here. Me and my mother and her were planting flowers. And we went in after we got done washing our hands and she got a piece of candy from grandma and she wanted to go back over and see her brothers. And I said, okay. And I walked her all the way over to the porch. And I watched her walk into the kitchen where the boys were watching TV. And I told the boys, I said, watch Summer. I'll be back. And within two minutes, I came back. And I asked the boys where their sister was. And they said, she went downstairs, Mom, to play with her toys in the playroom. I said, okay. And I yelled downstairs for her a couple times. And I didn't get no answer which was unusual because usually she always answers me. And so I went down there to check and she was nowhere in sight. She was just gone. I don't go on walks around here or runs because I'm scared of the bears and snakes and even the coyotes that are around here. Well, whoever has my daughter, I pray and hope that they have not harmed her and they bring her back to us safe and sound. Just turn, I mean, go to the FBI, the police, and uh, clear it up. I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of elusive. It's really strange that I've never seen this truck, and I've never heard of it until just recently. 
but I wish they would come forward and explain themselves. I mean, if you're not a suspect, at least come forward and say what you've seen. She was a tomboy. I shaved my head. She wanted to have her head shaved like me and the boys did. She tried to shave her head she tried in to the back and, and make it. Uh, I think you can see it in some of the pictures. And it was getting out of control. So she, we decided to shave her head off and let it grow back long. And she shaved her head to... To, so she wouldn't feel bad, and uh, but but it didn't bother her at this point. Well, we knew I knew right away that she was abducted. You know, I knew that right away, and that's what I told them from the beginning. But they have to they have to go through their you know I forget the word investigation. They have to do one step at a time, I guess. But I'm sorry that they had to spend so many man hours in these woods and everything. I've seen them limping and everything else, you know, and I feel for them. But I just wish there was a way that neighbors could search neighbors' houses and then if they're not willing, you know, get a search warrant or something. But there's just no way you can search every single house, you know, in the eastern United States or whatever. But I wish there was a way. Just thankful for the person or persons that's doing that, you know, out of love, trying it. trying to get information and trying to get her found. And we thank them from the bottom of our hearts. That means and, a lot. And we thank uh, everybody who's trying so hard and praying so hard. And she's an awesome young lady, and uh, we just want her back. But, yeah. yeah, there's always going to be haters, you know, and. You know, it's always going to be that way in this world, and we just want to focus on the the good friends and Christian people that are trying to help us and praying for us and praying for summer. And we thank them from the bottom of our hearts, and that's the kind of people we try to relate with and socialize with. So we don't know anything about, you know, no red truck, or we hardly know many of our neighbors. I mean, because... We just try to be around good people. I mean, and we do have good people in this area. We found out since this has all happened, we got some real good neighbors and good folks everywhere. But uh, the most important uh, thing is to bring Summer home. I'm sorry that you feel this way about us, but we love our children with everything we have. We've never went without, thanks to Summer's daddy and my husband. He's always provided for us and has worked as much as he could and can and still is. And I'm sorry that you guys feel that way, but that's my baby. And You know, I... I uh... When I watched that, I I know this that was maybe uh, a day or two after this occurred, and it's it's difficult not to have your suspicions raised when you watch that that interview. Absolutely, Bill, and you know, listen, I didn't become a detective right out of the police academy. When I came out of the police academy, I wore a uniform, went on patrol on foot in the car, and you answered calls. I had 
thousands of interactions with people. We call it a job in the NYPD. I went on thousands of jobs and, you know, people that aren't involved in criminal activity or don't have criminal activity around them aren't calling the police. So a lot of times you'd get to know who the victims are or, or who, who's calling the police. If it's a domestic incident, if it's drugs. So my point is this, I could walk into a situation and make a judgment based on the appearance of the people that I was talking to. And my judgment on those two people is they look like narcotics abusers or alcohol abusers. So there's no question in my mind. And when we came to that conclusion early on and we said, so we, we raised all the red flags that we thought that were, you know, out of the ordinary when, you know, right off the bat in the interview you just showed when he said about the shaving the hair, that was out of the, out of the ordinary behavior. Uh, we thought that there could be alcohol use, drug use, and I could go on and on with all the different red flags that, you know, they were both committed to the fact that she was kidnapped in the middle of the day. I find that very hard, believe, hard to believe she was abducted. They were resigned to the fact that she was abducted and that she wasn't alive anymore. They both indicated that in numerous interviews. So my point is this, over time of being a police officer, being in law enforcement, you can make judgments like this pretty quickly and you can, your instincts kick in and you know where you're going with this investigation. A person, two people or a person is reporting someone missing and Obviously, you're going to look at them and get all the information out of them that you can, especially, especially it's dealing with a five-year-old child that's missing. Now it's going on for hours and days and now it's 70 days. So I think the vindication based on what we said in our earlier podcast, our earlier shows that we thought that they may be involved and in, that we would be looking at them a little clearer. The vindication on that is that the fact that we said the Bureau of Child Services should be looking into the other children in the home. Lo and behold, they removed the three children. That was weeks ago, maybe six weeks ago, five, six weeks ago. So I think that our instincts were correct, that there wasn't a, a good atmosphere in that home, that they didn't remove the children without cause. You have to have cause to move children. So I'm sure that there was cause. They removed the children. Uh, my knowledge is that up to today, those children still aren't back in the home. And, you know, I think that our instincts were correct, that those two people, I don't know if they're involved, but they seem to be holding back information. And I bet that when everything, you know, shakes out and the investigation is completed and we find out what did happen, that there's going to be some explaining to do by those two people that they definitely told mistruths. We've established that several times already. So the vindication is, is that they removed the kids. And I think that our suspicions were right on track. Uh, Joe Murray, thanks for the 499 Super Chat. He says, remember that just because they may be untruthful in their statements here, it could just be them uh, cleaning up their act for CPS. Well, what, you know, Joe, one of the things that we found out early on in the investigation was that his sister years ago uh, reported to TBI maybe two days after someone was missing that he had sexually abused her from the age of five till she was about 10 or 12, I believe it was. So TBI has that, had that early in the investigation. And if that, uh, that I, I believe that's true. Someone who's a pedophile or a sexual abuser, most of the time had that, that happened to them too. The abuser was the abused, but he's not going to stop doing that. So was he in fact also sexually abusing Summer? And may, his own kids, for that matter. So all all the folks that are out there who were 
championing uh, Don and saying, oh, what a good guy he was. They have evidence that besides his criminal history, which, look, people can turn their life around from a criminal history, but as as late as last October, he had threatened um, Candace's life and he had a gun in the car, he was drunk, and she didn't go forward to prosecution. So, you know, we're the police, or we were the police, and we dealt with this stuff all the time. And something like that, at least where we worked, was a must-arrest. Whether she wanted to prosecute or not, uh, it, it would have been P- PSNY. People stayed in New York would have prosecuted it because we couldn't walk away from a domestic violence incident because we've learned from, from the past that uh, walking away from a domestic violence incident sometimes makes it escalate to a, to a murder investigation. So that's why, you know, and then when we uh, marry this to this the, the, the sexual abuse, in fact, well, he was in prison. He got out of prison. The night he got out of prison, from what I understand, he went right back to sexually abusing his sister. So hor- horrendous. And, you know, sexual abusers aren't healed. And I'm sure there's probably someone in the chat that's probably a uh, a doctor or, or has background in that type of investigation and they don't get healed from that you know so it's it's a horrible thing you know bill you brought up a great point because uh i'm going to just back up a little bit uh me and you are two detectives let's say or a detective and a sergeant responding to a, a case of a missing person uh a five-year-old kid and uh, there would probably be other detectives around and i always worked in a team concept and the minute that i took the name address and date of birth of the two people that are reporting let's say con candace and don or if even if it's just candace i would ask who the father is I'm going to hand that off to another detective. I'll do it myself. And we're going to run the criminal background check. That's standard operating procedure. Anybody involved in an investigation, whether it be a missing person or murder, I'm going to check them out. I'm going to run them for their record. And then I'm going to ask them about if they, you know, in my interview, I'll ask them, have you ever been arrested? Now they're going to say, no, I've never been arrested. But then I'm going to have this piece of paper with all the arrests. And, you know, when you're looking at a five-year-old missing, you're going to always look at, could it be some type of uh, an abduction for, uh, uh, you know, sexual satisfaction? So now you have that he had a a previous arrest for sexual abuse on his own sister. And like you said, Bill, uh, you know, these type of things, they don't just fade off when you get arrested. There's, you know, there is, uh, you know, uh, mental health for for people like that. You know, know, Phil, could I just stop you for one second? Dot to dot. She says she's a clinical therapist here and uh, sexual abusers are never healed. So well, there you go. A- you have it from a doctor right there. So, I mean, you know, and, and looking at all those things, and then you brought up the domestic violence case, which was only a few months prior to some of being reported missing, where he was drunk and he was carrying an illegal firearm and he was arrested by the police and they dropped the charges based on Candace's statements that she didn't want him arrested. She didn't want to follow through with it. Like you said, in New York city, it would have been a must arrest situation. The people stayed in New York would have been the complaining on that. And it would have gone ahead. However, in Tennessee, it didn't. But the point is this, if he was arrested as a child for sexual abuse and he had nothing else ever arrested, no run-ins with the law ever again until his current, you know, till today, you might say, okay, there's a chance that maybe he was reformed, but it looks like he had other run-ins with the Lord, his other criminal activity. And also in the, the day that the, t- the children were taken, 
The reason they say the children were taken is because he was in a drunken, he, he actually made comment on it, a, a drunken incident, or he used a different word. So, I mean, you know, he was under pressure with all the stuff going on. His daughter's missing. He went into a drunken rage. They removed the kids. My point is this, the behavior hasn't changed. It's consistent from when he was young and he was getting arrested, whether it be for sexual abuse or years and years later when he's getting arrested for domestic violence with Candace, he has a history. Now, that does not make him the perpetrator 100%, but that makes him a good suspect to be looked at and answer all of these things out. That's all. I mean, I would just want answers to these questions. And I don't think that uh, they're out of the realm of possibility to look in, in that direction. And, and, you know, we've had some people that say, oh, you know, you're going after him, this and that. We're not going after him for no reason. I have my instincts. Bill, you've been on hundreds and thousands of jobs, like, like I said earlier. And when you walk in, you can you can tell pretty early on if a person is using narcotics or abusing alcohol. That's what it appeared to me. So that right away, that's the first red flag. In the first two minutes I'm talking to them, that's a red flag. And then all of the things that they said, and now you you you, you get back to the office or you get it done by another detective and they hand it to you. Now he's you, you got a, a a lot of criminal history. I don't know what, what Candace's criminal history is, but Don seems to have a, a pretty hefty jacket. So, you know, these are the things that you're going to you know, build your case on. You're going to move forward with that. You know, Phil, some of the people in the chat are, are saying that though Don was never arrested for sexual abuse, but the allegation from his sister, and uh, she made a, she reported it to uh, TBI, and I know they can't, uh, they can refer the report to the state that it occurred in. And I don't know what the statute of limitations are in the specific, I think it was Utah. I don't know if that is still prosecutable at this instance, but the allegation sounded pretty damn uh, believable, you know, and we've seen uh, lesser allegations result in, in, in prosecution for this type of thing. And so it's like to say that he's innocent of it because he was never arrested of it. Well, he, she never charged him of it. And a lot of people that are sexually abused are afraid to come forward because it's there's such a stigma to it. We've seen that in, you know, in, in religions. We've seen a lot of that in the Catholic Church, where priests have been uh, alleged to have um, committed sex crimes against children. So it's not an easy thing for the complainant to come forward, and that's what I'm saying. And I'm not again saying, look, Don doesn't make me feel good when I see him speak, and I don't. Uh, and I, of course, everyone is innocent. So proven guilty, but he, he just, every time he opens his mouth, it seems like he puts his, uh, his foot in it, you know? You know, Bill, we're not saying that he did anything wrong. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that based on the information that we know, and again, we don't have privilege to the actual case folder or any of the information or the investigators. We're not talking to the investigators, but what we see, we just think that he has a little bit more explaining to do based on his criminal history, his, uh, substance abuse and alcohol abuse or whatever was going on. And there's obviously something going on in that home that they removed those kids. They haven't brought them back. And well, you know, you Phil, know, uh, he, he also, uh, people in the chat is telling me right now that he admitted to the sexual abuse. So, and, and she, the, the sister is making these allegations currently. It's not like she made it you know, 40 years ago or 20 years ago. And, you know, she, she, today she's saying it's not true. She's, she's allegating it today that, that these things occurred. So, I mean, listen, 
again, we don't know that he didn't that he did it or he didn't do it. We don't know that, but we definitely have uh, we're on solid ground to say that we think he should be looked at, and we think that these other things, these red flags and these inconsistency inconsistencies, should be explored for sure. Bill, we're going to go to a quick uh, break, and then we'll come right back. We just have a couple of commercials to uh, go through, and you could do the first one. Are you tired of the same old surroundings? Are you looking to relocate, or are you just in need of a real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? Well, Carol Waters is your girl, and her husband, Rob Mahon, who is a retired member of the NYPD and a New York Fire Department, are both million-dollar sales agents down in South Carolina, Myrtle Beach. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you could email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. That's carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. One of her customers said she always goes the extra mile. Joe Murray, we wish he was here tonight under the weather. Get well soon, Joe. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702, or email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. I would put that phone number in my phone just in case. Folks, uh, policecoffee.com is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. It'll provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted to fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of the profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products, just go to policecoffee.com. Go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10. That's off the cuff 10. That's policecoffee.com. I just actually ordered, ordered some of this coffee myself, so I'll report back to you on how good it is. Um, if you're looking for supplements, be sure to check out the products from firstdonutrition.com. As first responders, there are certain expectations and our performance on the job. We train hard and drill often to be able to perform at our best when duty calls. Whether it's hoofing over 100 pounds of gear or engaging in a spontaneous foot chase, we work out like our life depends on it, because it does. Two New York City firemen created this supplement line with hand-picked products that will not pop positive on any drug test for first responders. Solid pre-workout products that will give you a good pump and a short-term strength boost that can help you power through your workout. Supplements that help with fat burning and weight loss and post-workout formulas that support recovery. Go to firstdonutrition.com. Use code off the cuff to get 10% off your order. You know, folks, uh, this this case, uh, again, is, is not an easy case, obviously. If it was easy, there would already be closure to it. But the reason it's so, it's, it's really 
caught the heartstrings of everyone nationally is because of this little girl, this little girl, Summer Wells. And we all, what we all state all the time is that we pr hope and pray that little Summer can be recovered alive. That would be the, the most amazing thing if that could happen. But today is the 70 days since this occurrence. So, you know, it, it's not a probability. Could it be? Could this happen? Could she be alive? 100%. I would never be the one to say, oh, there's no hope. But 70 days gone by, and this is a case that at least we don't have all the information on. And we're hoping that uh, Hawkins County, the TBI, the FBI has more information that we're not privy to. And again, uh, we like to shout out to uh, Midwest EquiSearch, David Rader and, and Twyla there. These folks do God's work, and they've recovered over 244 um, uh, remains of children that have been missing all over the world, not just in this country. And they've actually recovered 400 people alive. So they're an unbelievable organization. They're a, a nonprofit, 501c3. And I've uh, spoken to Dave Rader on numerous occasions. What a superstar, as all these people are. And if they were asked to come back to Hawkins County, they would do it in a minute. But they have to be asked. They don't just show up without being asked. Bill, I want to make a comment about Texas EquiSearch and uh, Midwest EquiSearch. I was very, very skeptical when I heard about this group because I thought they would just be amateurs traipsing into possible a crime scene. However, I was 100% wrong. Like you stated, 1,860 searches that they've conducted so far, 400 missing returned safe. That's a big number. Think about it. 400 people missing Return safe to their family. That's a big number. Obviously, you said 200 and uh, I have 238. You said 40. Remains recovered. And not one crime scene was compromised by them doing their search. The minute they found something, they closed off the area. They backed out. They notified the proper authorities. And I think that in, in, in New York City, it, it, it's not very likely that they'd be doing searches here because we have such a tremendous police department. But anywhere across the country, any law enforcement agency, do not hesitate to enlist these people to help you. They're professionals. They have professional equipment right up to date. I mean, they have drones that can tell if an area was, uh, uh, if it was dug up or if it was disturbed, if, if the, the earth was disturbed. They have real high tech stuff. They go out with GPS monitoring. They know what they're doing. I was completely wrong. I was very skeptical, but they are very professional and they are a not-for-profit organization. You can make a uh, donation to them and you it wouldn't be a waste of money. I would say it's actually a very good cause. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I reiterate and maybe I talk about too much on this show is that one of the reasons I love doing this show is the fantastic people that I get to meet in conjunction with doing this show. And that includes guests, people in the chat, people that want to be in the police off-the-cuff family. And, uh, you know, it's it's an amazing thing to me. And one of them I include as an amazing person is Dave Rader from uh, – Midwest EquiSearch, and Tim Miller, of course, the founder who's from uh, Texas EquiSearch. 
And these people when are you just, hear his just, story, but I don't mean to interrupt you, but when you hear his story, his daughter was abducted and murdered years back. And I mean, it's just tremendous that he went through that. And now he decided to turn it around and make something positive come up, come out of something so horribly negative. And now Dave Rader joined in with him and they're a great team. And, uh, very successful and uh the people our hats got to go off to those people that do i mean they do it on the weekend they work all weekend and they give up their weekends they they volunteer their time to help in in these searches and uh god bless them all and it's a it's really like you said we met a lot of good people and uh it's uh brothers helping brothers and sisters helping sisters. And, uh, it's really, uh, it's good to be part of it. Like you said, I feel very honored to be part of the guests and the people we meet just like Dave Rader and Tim Miller, like you said, hundred uh, percent. Um, no one. Thanks for the four ninety nine chat. Your question is, is it normal to not have any real searches since the beginning? Is that a sign that they know who is involved? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's a sign that they know who is involved. Could could they know, you know, well, they, they absolutely know a lot more than we know. But do they know enough to, to solve this case? If they did, it would be solved right now. They haven't pulled the trigger on anybody or anything. So we just got to hope and pray that they're going in the right direction that they're collecting information, that they got evidence. And at some point, let's hope that they find this little angel, you know, this five-year-old girl that's been missing for 70 days, you know? That was a great question that that young lady posted. Now, I don't know that there wasn't extensive search in the beginning. I think she thinks that maybe EquiSearch came in later on. There may have been some, some pretty good searches in the beginning, but she makes another good point without even realizing it. There may be enough right at this point to arrest someone. And it just could be that the prosecutors, the district attorney's office is holding back on that. Cause in New York, when we would have a, a case that turned into a murder case, uh, the district attorney's office would be plugged in right from the beginning. And they, we would have to get authorization from them to make the arrest because they're the ones that are going to try the case. And rightfully so they'd say, all right, wait for this, wait for that, do this, do that. And they may be waiting until if there is horribly a homicide in this case and they may be waiting for remains to be found they may be holding back on it they could have enough to make an arrest at this point we don't know but again they may be there might be more leads and tips coming in and there might be stuff coming back on on uh subpoenas and and search warrants and you know regard to the electronics cell phones computers video cameras so we don't know exactly that part of it again there may be a lot more than we know and there may be people, you know, they may be waiting to put bracelets on somebody or, or more than one person. And uh, it, it, it'll all come together. I know we've been saying it. You got to be patient. And uh, I think it's going to happen. Just uh, it, it needs time. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo from Harlem Raiders NYPD. Uh, thank you for the $5 super chat. Appreciate Bill and Phil putting the facts of the case together and coming up with sound ideas. Thank you, Lieutenant Pete. For you folks that don't know who Lieutenant Peter Pranzo is, he's actually an NYPD legend, and he's got a book called The Harlem Raiders, and I appreciate him and his wife, uh, Richella. They're here all the time. They're uh, some of the biggest supporters of uh, good people, off the really cuff. good people. Uh, unbelievable. Um, Jim Davis, I live in East Tennessee, and we will never, never forget this sweet angel. It, was, it has impacted my life major majorly. Because these poor kids had such a rough life. Uh, you know, 
Jim, I agree with you. I think I think you're right. Uh, Kathy Varela, from hearing Jeannie's interview, she stated that her mom and her, and her wanted to tell her story. But from what I understand, the stepfather, Don's father, threatened divorce, then she should have divorced him, you know? If that's if he's hiding a, a sexual predator, even though it, it's his son, you know, uh, she should have walked out on him. Um, Teresa loves, loves Roro. Hope the kids get adopted by a loving family. He shouldn't return back to those two. Uh, Miss Justice 1111, EquiSearch is in here. EquiSearch, uh, I've spoken to Dave uh, Rader in the last two weeks, and he said if they're called to come back, they would come back in a minute. But they have to be requested. They're not just going to show up by themselves. So they have to be requested by the police agency involved. And uh, Carolyn Fields Hawkins won't let them come back. I don't know the politics of this. I don't know if um, what they know about the search, what's been searched, what hasn't been searched, if it would continue to be fruitful to search. So we don't know the, the answers to those questions. Uh, Denise Pennington says EquiSearch not needed back at this time, they were told. I think that may be great news. Well, Denise, we could maybe read into that as that maybe they have some information that we don't know about, you know. Um, that's something positive for sure, Bill, because, uh, you know, if this was a needle in a haystack, you'd want as many people searching as possible. That's obviously an indication of something. But, uh, you know, tomorrow morning someone may walk in and say, I saw, uh, I don't know, I'll just use uh, Don as an example. I saw Don in this area and he went into the woods and, you know, they, they may call EquiSearch tomorrow and say, you know, we want help going into this area. It's a large area to search. And, uh, you know, but I think that that does say something for sure. If they were told, if that in fact is true, if they were told they were not needed back. I mean, you know, uh, it could be somebody playing a, a boundary line that they didn't want them involved, but uh, I doubt very highly since they're such professionals. That's uh, that, that says something for sure. There was another question here uh, from Charmax too. Does law enforcement tell people if they passed or were deceptive in a lie detector test? Why would they tell Don and Candace they passed? I mean, we don't know whether that's true, not true. Um, we didn't use lie detectors a whole lot, as Bill and I have stated before. But if they were given a lie detector test um, and they failed, I doubt they would have made it out of the room. They probably would have confronted them with that right away. And if they passed, I guess it would only be right to let them know that they passed. But uh, we don't even know that they took it. That's what they're saying. We're, we're just going by their word. And, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, I, I do understand that in the beginning they offered to give her a lie detector test to Candace and she flipped out or she was drunk or she was high. You can't give a person a lie, lie detector that's intoxicated. So, And I don't know whatever became of it after that. They're going around saying that they took it and they passed. It's it's their word. We don't know for sure, and it's not corroborated. You know, Rosemary Hill, I, I saw this the other day. Uh, she asked uh, uh, whether or not some channels asking for $2,000 so Don and Candace can get a copy of the, of the complaint report. They get that without – they don't have to pay for it. You know, they, they could – their attorney or whoever they could <clears> – they could get a – as discovery – they would also get it, but you could even a regular citizen could get a copy of that uh, based on the freedom of information law once they would release it. So it's and there would be a fee that may be a ten dollar fee, but it's certainly not two thousand dollars. 
and the people involved in that through their attorneys, they can absolutely get a copy of it. What, so, what are they asking for, Bill? Two thousand. Some some channel some channel is trying to say that it costs two thousand dollars to get a copy of the complaint report. That's pure, pure nonsense. That's people make this stuff yeah, up. And, yeah. I mean, it's just you know, it's that's just trying to scam money. That's what that is. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a pure, pure nonsensical. Whoever made that up is just uh, has no business talking about anything to do with law enforcement because total nonsense. You know. Uh, yeah, it's a scam. New York would give it to you with redacted stuff if there's sensitive information on there. Give it to you for free. So or maybe five or ten dollars, whatever it is. That's nonsense. Right. The, the NYPD gives nothing away for free. <laughs> you, you want a copy of a report? Yeah, it'll be depending $10. on who you know. Depending on who you yeah, know. Yeah, that'll be ten dollars for mm -hmm. the copy of the report. Absolutely. You know, folks. All we can say, and thank you everyone tonight for uh, for listening in here. We hope and pray that. Um, Summer Wells is, of course, recovered alive. I didn't like the way, you know, we watched again the interview of Don and Candace. I didn't like the way that sounded from, from day one, you know. And there's several different scenarios that could have occurred during this case. The abduction one, uh, it, it seems that most law enforcement professionals uh, think that, yes, could that have happened? Yes, but it's not likely based on the facts, you know, the time frame and all of that stuff, where the house is, how far it is into the woods, the 13 dogs they have on the property. Would she have walked off? I mean, one of those, that, that doesn't seem likely, you know, Equisearch, Dave Rader felt it was totally not a possibility. So when you listen to the professionals, some of the other, the other things were that could she have been involved in an accident? And because they covered it up, they got rid of, you know, the body. There's all of these people hypothesizing and theorizing, we'll use that term again, without evidence or facts, because that's what investigators do. And that's what, of course, you folks that are listening in the chat room and listening to different channels talk about this case. And look, everyone has a right to their opinion. What may have happened, you know? Could Don and Candace be involved in this? Yeah, I think they could be. Could the grandmother have taken her away? Yes. But again, I we think law enforcement knows a lot more that they're keeping very close to the chest, and they're not letting us know that. So if we were intimately involved in this investigation, one of the investigators supervising the investigation, we would have answers to these questions. But again, we said it a million times, we're not privy to the case folder, we're not privy to the interviews, the, the confidential interviews that the police have done. We can't, we can just hypothesize and theorize. I love that term. And the third part of that, I used to say to my detectives, stop hypothesizing and theorizing and start typerizing your reports. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. They Listen, hated, you know, I they hated when I said that. I'm glad people are putting their theories forward because they're using common sense, but we've really uh, eliminated, so to speak, some of them. Like the, the theory about her being walking off the property and, you know, going into the woods and collapsing and not being found. I think that that's almost, I'd say, 100% zero. That's zero because between the dogs and all the activity, and then they did searches and Equisearch was there, and Bill Rader was on the ground on the property, and, and he said that was unlikely. The other thing was the abduction. 
Very little weight goes into that. The time of day, the people that were home, the dogs, all of that. The only two things that I see is there was some type of an accident. It was covered up. Uh, and then the other thing could be an intentional uh, murder. And, you know, there was also people were putting out there, you, Bill, you and I talked about it, that maybe uh, Candace took her and brought her somewhere else to, to keep her safe from whatever abuse is going on in the home. I think that it was a possibility, but I think with all the pressure that's been going from then till now, seven, eight days in, I would think that she would have come forward with the truth or whoever had her would have said, Hey, you know, enough is enough. People are out searching and you know, this is getting a little out of control. I think somebody would said, Hey, she's safe. We have her. So I don't think you that's would Phil, you would hope that our freedom seven fifteen. you said no one is ever asking for $2,000 to get the police report. People are not relaying things correctly. Then please, Straighten me out. I, I read something about that on another channel also. And you repeat, no one ever asked for $2,000 for a police report. If you're going to repeat something, repeat the facts. Let me know what the facts are, our Freedom 715. I saw on another channel that they were, someone was saying that they, uh, they had heard that it cost $2,000 to get the police report. I heard that with my own ears. So yeah. if, I, if I I'm think, wrong. I think that was a comment or something, right, Bill? That's yeah, yeah. If, I, if I'm wrong, our freedom, please give me the facts and I'll uh, I'll correct it. Yeah, know, we can tell you from our standpoint that that's definitely positively not the way it goes. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's there's thousands of dollars could be spent on a lot of different things with criminal defense and stuff like that when, you, when you're when calling for the minutes on a trial and stuff, but a, a complaint report is not 2000 But, Bill, I want to bring up one other thing a little off topic. I have a new moniker for you and I, and I want to see if the people like it in the chat. Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil. Sergeant Phil <laughs> and Detective Phil. It's Sergeant too, Phil and Detective it, Phil. It, it, it's it's too hokey. <laughs> a, a lot of people they say, "Oh, Bill and Phil, Bill," and I'm thinking of that movie, Kill Bill, and all all of that. Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil. And, and you know, a, a little backstory on how you and I got together, and I think we talked about it earlier that you and I were both a privilege to be on a show called The Perfect Murder, which was done by uh, Kevin Kaufman and a retired first grade detective, Rick Torelli. So he asked us for stories and and to eventually act in the show. So I met you. You were, had already done a couple of episodes, and I did one with you, which was called Driving with the Devil. I think it was in 2016. And then I did went on to do two more. I gave him stories and, and from my old squad, from the 6-0 squad. And then when we started doing the show, we got Joe Murray involved. There's a lot of other police officers and, and bosses that we worked with. And it's sort of like uh, uh, Duty Run. Can't leave Duty Run out. Duty Run really, really. I mean, I've been on his show. You've been on his show. He's been on your show. He's been on this show. And, uh, you know, he was a great help for it. So the point is, is that there's camaraderie here. We're all trying to help one another. And uh, I just think that uh, it's going pretty good. I think Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Roro, uh, Roro, Roro asks, our DNC um, – Told they have to stay in their area. I don't know. I don't know if they were told that they're not allowed to travel. I don't think so. Uh, but uh, where I'm are not, they going? Where are they going? Yeah, really? I don't know. I don't think they're going to be going anywhere. But I don't think they're confined. I don't believe they are. Uh, I could be wrong again. Because um, uh, you know, could they be told to stay around? You know, no, not really, unless they were placed under arrest. You know. Legally, they can't be told not to leave. You know, that's something from television. Don't leave the state and all of that. But if there was some 
type of a person that had assets that could flee the country. They would take away a passport and things like that. But Don and, and Candace have been on so many different uh, news interviews and podcasts. Where can they go and hide? They're, they're, I don't think that's e even a consideration at this point. Even if they left the state, where they'd be pretty easy to find. So right, I don't think that that's uh, life. Life is short, Sergeant Bill and Detective and Detective Phil. You're both great. Thank you so much. Life is short. That's uh, that's a, that's very kind of you. Um, Deborah Haig, I'm wondering if Candace and Grandis forgot about summer when sorting groceries, et cetera, and summer passed in the SUV from the heat. Just my, well, I mean, you know, I would, I would discount nothing. Anything is possible. Is it probable that that happened? I, I you know, I don't think so. It would be, it'd be hard. Look, any, as I said, anything is possible. I, I can't, you can't rule out anything. Uh, couldn't you see, Bill, though, if God forbid there was some type of an accident that they wouldn't want to be held uh, responsible for it and maybe, you know, disposing of some? Isn't, it, isn't that a possibility in your mind, Bill? Look, everything's a possibility. Uh, we look at not just possibilities, but probabilities, you know, and that's what we base our, investigate, our investigation on the probable direction that it should go. Are we wrong sometimes? Yes. We've all been wrong before. And when we're wrong, we start all over. Angela Eng, Sergeant Bill and Detective Phil, I like it. Thank you. And Joe, <laughs> Joe, Murray, Joe, Joe Murray, New York FOIL, com compiled for law enforcement purposes in which, if disclosed, would interfere with law enforcement investigations or judicial proceedings. And a FOIL, of course, Stands for Freedom of Information Law. So, uh, you know, Joe Murray is dying to be here, but he's not feeling well, so he's in the chat. That's the second best thing. And I know a lot of you ladies think Joe's a real suave, good-looking fella, and he is. But he's got so a lot of admirers on this channel. Is he, and, you know, Joe just found out that his phone number that he listed on his commercial, he didn't check it. It was ringing off the hook. And he just found out about that today, and he's answering really? hundreds, hundreds of calls that he's been getting. You know, and I guess uh, I didn't read that number out in vain then. <laughs> <laughs> but he just he just found this out, you know. Uh, Kim Wendell, they told Don they would help him raise the money that they can be about two thousand dollars. Well, we discussed that before, and I was told I was wrong and I wasn't reporting facts, but I heard it with my own ears, so I don't know. How I was reporting it. There's a question from Mercy K. What would their charges be if they concealed the body? Now, I think that's a great question. If they just concealed the body, there's a charge, uh, illegal disposing of a human body. But uh, they would have to know for a fact. They'd have to know all the details and the facts of how the person died. I mean, if they just covered it up, but there would be more charges than that. I mean, they, they've reported a missing, falsely reporting an incident. There'd probably be a lot of other things. But if she, in fact, died by accident and they just covered it up, I don't think they would see a lot of jail time. So uh, that's the answer to your question. All right. Our Freedom 715. A ghost knows she said that someone from a previous case she heard was asked to pay $2,000 for a report they wanted. She never said it would cost Don $2,000, but that's very similar. And no one paid $2,000 for a police report. So that's uh, false information. Uh, yeah. It's just not anywhere remotely correct. Uh, factual breakdown. If someone had an accident, I think she either drowned or hit her head. Candace and Don were afraid 
the death wouldn't be ruled an accident. Well, you know something? There's a distinct possibility to that because, as we said, it appeared that Kansas was high and or uh, drunk when she did that interview. So and let's uh, not forget that they they talked about ingesting um, this uh, tea tea drink with the alcohol in it, and they went to get painkillers from the drugstore from the mother's trip to the emergency room. So you know you got to put all the components together here and look at it, and there could have been some type of you know even if she died by an accident, not at their hands, and God forbid she drowned or something, but they were high and they didn't want to expose themselves to you know, being involved with law enforcement in that condition that they could be, you know, oh, you weren't watching or something. So anything's possible, of course. But I think those components of where they were before, the narcotics that they picked up, the painkillers, the the drinking the sweet tea or whatever that thing is called, uh, which is an alcoholic beverage, all of those things have to be looked at. And there's obviously a uh, history of substance and alcohol abuse with both of those people. I mean, I think it's quite obvious. So, wow, you know something. And as I said um, a bunch of times, this is a complicated case. There's of nothing course. easy about this case. And the longer it stays open, the more different things will come to light. The more rumors will come to light. And again, uh, rumors run rampant when you don't have the facts uh, to dispute the rumors. You know, and um, you know, we used to say on the New York City Police Department, uh, rumors were the way that people put out information just to make themselves feel better, you know, because yeah. sometimes, you, you know, rumors help people. Oh, if that's true, that's good. But yeah. most of the time it wasn't true, you know. Factual uh, breakdown puts twisted tea. It was called twisted tea. She put twisted tea for twisted people. I guess there could be something to that. <laughs> Uh, Heather Smith, I highly doubt grandma got opioids for a bad knee at ER in today's climate of, of opioid hysteria. If she did, it was only a 3D drug um, by law in Tennessee, especially on WC billing. Uh, okay, thanks. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of professional people in the chats, and a lot of people know a lot of things about their area of expertise. And uh Bill and I will be the first to admit we don't know everything. For sure, we don't know everything. Yeah, know? but I'm sure she could have gotten, a, uh, listen, some kind of painkiller, Tylenol, Codeine. You take four or five of those and you drink a twisted tea, you're flying. So, I mean, I don't know what the laws are or how they, how they dispense there. But, I mean, depending on the severity of the injury, you know, if she's an elderly woman, she's got a twisted knee, they probably prescribed a painkiller. So, uh, you know, anything's possible, though. Hmm. You know, folks, I think that we've sort of, uh, you know, presented what we wanted to present tonight. And as I said in the beginning, we didn't have any new smoking gun information that would everyone would be like, oh, wow, we found out this new stuff. But we still want to keep uh, this case alive and to keep uh, keep folks interested in it and keep, you know, uh, the memory of summer being missing for 70 days and keep this case in the consciousness of the public. And um, by, you know, just presenting what we did tonight, I think that helps it a little bit. And it's always good to talk about it and to come up with ideas. Uh, Joe Murray states, Bill, that's why I love this community. I learned so much here at Police Off the Cuff. Thank you so much, Joe. And, of course, Joe Murray, we hope that you feel better. We know you're a little bit under the weather. And, uh, folks, if you're not subscribed to um, – 
police off the cuff. Please go on YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us the some uh, the thumbs up, uh, ring the bell. We also now have a, a membership. Uh, we have four tiers. I'll just go over them quickly. The bucket, polish my rack, dipped in butter. And we couldn't think of the highest level. So we said, you know something? What's better than dipped in butter? Heated, dipped in heated butter. So the, the highest tier is heated dipped in butter. So uh, we have a sense of humor on the show too. And uh, as we said earlier, we have some amazing guests coming up. And uh, we want to keep this, this case alive though, uh, to keep our police perspective on this case and keep uh, keep this case out there in, in the public uh, consciousness. Phil, uh, you have any last words? Yeah, looking forward to uh, September 15th, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. We'll be interviewing Sammy the Bull Gravano, a world-renowned world renowned, uh, organized crime member. He was an underboss. Uh, I'm actually, uh, Bill and I are going to have a phone call tomorrow with uh, Jimmy Calandra to possibly get him on. And we're working on some other guests in the organized crime uh, genre. Uh, looking forward to doing the show. Obviously, keep the Summer Wells case alive. Anything that uh, pops up on that case, we'll be right on it. Uh, so we'll do, do an update show. If if something pops tomorrow, we'll be right on it tomorrow night. So, uh, you know, just keep your fingers crossed and prayers for summer. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing these upcoming shows. And then any other uh, national shows or national attention, uh, missing person cases. I mean, uh, this is what we did. This is what we do. And uh, with regard to the organized crime cases with uh, Tommy Dades that we're going to go over, uh, him and I both come from Brooklyn and uh, grew up around this type of stuff. Bill said earlier that uh, Sammy the Bull was right in my neighborhood. I never, you know, uh, shook hands with him and said hello to him, but I did know who he was. I had seen him around. And uh, so it's going to be intriguing stuff. Uh, we'll bring it right to you. And uh, if you didn't subscribe, subscribe. And, uh, Keep the comments coming. We love the comments because everybody's theory, everybody's opinion. We're willing to answer the questions. Uh, we don't say things off the cuff, as they say, but uh, <laughs> we say them with conviction because we have experience and, uh, you know, our opinions are from a professional view. Divine Visions Readings. Thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat. If someone died at house and was immediately removed, is it possible sniffer dogs missed that scent? Thanks for your great work. I don't think so. I mean, look, I'm not a dog expert, but I think if a scent was in the house, the dogs would have uh, had a positive hit on that. So, uh, I mean, I know Duty Ron did several shows in regards to the dogs. He had Equisearch on. He had some canine people on. So all of those questions, which I am not an expert on, I think they've been uh, they've been answered, you know, uh, on, on different uh, – Rosemary Hill, I've had a few cops polish my rack in my youth. I love that, Rosemary Hill. <laughs> yeah, we all have a sense of humor. You know, that's, I was a little worried, but I can explain that to you guys on the NYPD. Your shield is on the left side of your shirt, and your medals are above your shield. So when my detectives got on my nerves, I used to say to them, go get your gun cloth and some gun oil and go polish my rack. And it was like a put down, but it, it was a good sense of humor to it. So we put that uh, as one of our um, our sayings on police off the cuff. Go polish my rack, and I think it's funny. And I was a little worried that uh, 
people wouldn't find that to be funny, but I think it's we, we got to show a picture of the rack. I think I, I think I sent you a picture of me in uniform where I had my rack there and people <laughs> understand those medals, you know, you want to keep them shiny and clean. It looks good. If you, if you're into your appearance in your uniform, so go polish my rack, <laughs> go polish my rack. <laughs> that is funny. That is very yeah, funny. It is, it is. So folks, uh, thank you so much for, uh, listening tonight. Thank you so much for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. On behalf of myself, Sergeant retired Sergeant Bill Cannon, and Detective Phil Gamaldi from straight out of Brooklyn, thank you so much for listening tonight, for joining us, and please be safe and uh, have a great uh, tomorrow, great evening and a great tomorrow. Stay safe, everybody. Sergeant Bill, Detective Phil, signing off. <laughs>